You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to be with you again. Let's pray as we go to God's Word this morning. Lord, it's hard to conceive of anything more dangerous than having our minds informed this morning, but not having our hearts transformed by your word. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate our understanding and that, Lord, our knowledge of you would lead to a love for you and a love for your people. God, um, I pray that you would renew our minds this morning. And that, Lord, we would see that our knowledge about you must lead to knowledge of you and an intimate relationship with you, Jesus. Would we never mistake one for the other? Would we learn to love you more even this morning? Would we leave loving you more, loving others more as well? We ask it for your sake. Amen. So really early this morning, I I woke up and checked my news feed, and I saw an article, and the article made my day. Do you know why? Because it proved something, that I was right. (laughs) Now, like you, I have opinions. I have an opinion about that thing that happened, right? And I don't always share these opinions with you, but I have opinions about things. And this article presented evidence about a thing I had an opinion on. And and, and I actually didn't read the article. I just read the headline. Um, (laughs) But what I'm assuming the article said is that it turns out I was right. My opinion was right. And the moment I I read that headline, this feeling of pride just swelled in my heart, and I just thought, right again, Jeff. Is there a better feeling in the world than being right? Than being proven Right. Have you ever been at a party and someone asked a question and no one knew the answer? But you did. You just can't contain yourself. I, 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 I know it. You ever heard your spouse say those words, honey, you were right. Oh, some of you are still waiting to hear that, right? Uh, that feeling is like a drug. It is intoxicating. We live in this world where being right is so valued, this knowledge economy where Really, your value in the marketplace is based on what you know or your ability to learn new things. And often we can, we can sort of define our value in life as what we know, what we're right about. And I think you can transpose that mindset onto Christianity as well. Yeah, how do you know if you're a mature Christian? Well, you're right about things. You know a lot of things. You hold the correct theology, the correct opinions, the correct verses. You understand concepts that other Christians do not, and therefore you have arrived. That's what Paul's talking about in today's passage. He's talking to Christians who are obsessed with knowledge. And he says it can be a dangerous obsession. And so I want to ask a question this morning. What's so wrong about wanting to be right? Well, Paul shows us a few of the dangers. Passage starts this way. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
And there's the theme for today's passage. There's an attitude towards knowledge that puffs up. What we need is a love that builds up. The, the Corinthians had written Paul a letter. And in the second half of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses their letter and the questions that they had about their faith. So chapter 7, he addresses their questions about marriage and singleness. And now he deals with this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And here's the question. Is it permissible for a Christian to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol? And Paul will spend the next three chapters addressing not just that question, but all of the various issues entailed in that question. And ultimately, here's Paul's answer. It depends. It depends. There are times when it's okay to eat this kind of food. There are times when it's not okay. But here's what's interesting about 1 Corinthians 8. Paul is addressing people who are sinning in the way they are eating food. He is not talking about a gray area in this passage where sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not, because the specific thing he's addressing in this passage isn't just what they're eating, but where they're eating it. And apparently there were Corinthians who were not just eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, but they were eating it in a temple during a service where idols were being worshipped. Look at verse 10, what Paul goes on to say. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, what does he say? Eating in an idol's temple. So who is Paul talking to here? He is talking to Christians who are going into a temple. They are taking part in a temple worship services. They are eating a temple meal. And in essence, they are participating in idol worship, even though they don't believe in idols. Apparently, they just like the free dinner. Now, does Paul think that that is a gray area or an issue where Christians can just agree to disagree? No. He says getting close to idolatry in that way is a very bad idea. In fact, he will go on to say in chapter 10 that if you participate in these temple meals, you're opening yourself up to demons and demonic activity. So there is nothing gray about the issue Paul is addressing here. In fact, in chapter 10, he will say what? Flee from this. Flee from idolatry. Do not go in there. Do not eat those meals. Get out of the temple. Okay, so here's the question. If these Christians are doing something that's objectively wrong, why doesn't Paul tell them? Why does it, well, why does it take him two chapters before he finally gets around to saying it? And why does he immediately start talking about knowledge and love and the relationship between the two? Here's why he does that. Because Paul always does this. Paul never just tells you what to do. What does he do first? He tells you how to think. Paul doesn't just address the, the problem. He addresses the root of the problem. He doesn't just want the Corinthians to stop acting like Corinthians. He wants them to stop thinking like Corinthians and to start thinking like Christ. And so he always wants to address the underlying beliefs first. And that's chapters 8 and 9, the underlying beliefs about this. And then finally in chapter 10, he gets to the action. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. You remember that? What were the Corinthians doing? They were sleeping with prostitutes, right? pretty cut and dry issue, right? Paul could have said, dear Corinthians, morons, 
Stop doing that. Here are 47 verses from the Old Testament that would tell you, don't do this. He doesn't do that, does he? No, he talks about what is your body? What is your relationship with Jesus? What is sex? And now you have the answer. He does the same thing here, where he helps them to think through why they're doing it first. And what he wants to address is their underlying problem. Why would the Corinthians continue to do this? Why would they show up for idolatrous worship services to get a snack? Here's why they had a skewed view of knowledge and its importance in the Christian life. Look again at verse 1. The Corinthians said this, We know that we all possess knowledge. At various points in this letter, Paul will quote a Corinthian slogan. Have you noticed that? Something the Corinthians thought? Here's another thing the Corinthians thought, and I think this whole thing is a Corinthian slogan. The Corinthians said this, Hey, listen, Paul, we know that we all possess what? Knowledge. We're the smart Christians. These Christians thought they had arrived, that they had deep spiritual insight that made them mature Christians, special Christians. How does Paul respond to that attitude? Paul says, this knowledge that you claim to have, what does it do? Puffs up. What does love do? It builds up. According to Paul, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. We need accurate knowledge of God. But there is everything wrong with having a certain attitude towards knowledge. You know what the attitude is? We've arrived. Get out. We, we, we know what's really going on here. Paul says that attitude can only puff up. And that's dangerous for two reasons, Paul says. Here's the first reason it's dangerous. When I am inflated in my own knowledge, I'm blind. I'm blind in two ways. First, if I'm obsessed with being right, I can't see where I'm wrong. That's the irony. When I'm most confident that I'm in the right, I'm most likely to be wrong. Second, when I'm obsessed with being right, you know what else I can't see? How my actions might be wronging who? Other Christians who I'm called to love. So, two dangers, that's what we're talking about. Nothing wrong with knowledge. There's everything wrong with idolizing our knowledge and making it our source of pride. And what Paul points us to in this chapter is a way of ordering our lives, not fundamentally around our knowledge, but around love, which is the goal of knowledge. And that leads all the way, we'll see, to 1 Corinthians 13 in the famous love chapter. So that's where he's going. Let's look at the first problem. What's the first problem with this obsession with being right? Here's the first problem. When I'm obsessed with being right, I am blind to how I might be wrong. I'm most in danger of missing something. That's what Paul says in the next verse here. Don't you love this? If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. <laughs> if you're so assured you know, it reveals what? that you probably don't. That's a funny statement, isn't it? It's uh, Paul's way of talking about this smug, self-satisfied attitude toward our own rightness. It's what Proverbs calls being wise in your own eyes. See, the Corinthians had actually received a spiritual gift of knowledge. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 1. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, you've been rich in every way and wisdom and insight. So these Corinthians had experienced some pretty radical stuff. Like God had miraculously given them prophetic insight and words of wisdom, and spiritual knowledge. But here's the problem. The Corinthians thought that that made them really special. 
more special than other Christians. They were the knowers. That word know is in the perfect tense. It suggests that these Christians had thought, we'd arrived. It's like they were living in this heightened state of spiritual awareness all the time. And that really, if you're a mature Christian, that's how you know. You're smart like us. But Paul says anyone who thinks that way doesn't know nearly as much as they think they do. Because what does this reveal about the Corinthians? Two things. First, it, doesn't, it reveals that they don't actually understand the gift of knowledge. We'll see this later, that this supernatural gift of knowledge that God gives, he can give it, but he gives the gift at a particular time for a particular reason. So just because you've received this gift from God once doesn't mean you live in this permanent state of a spiritual superpower where you just know everything about the faith. Second, even if God did give a miraculous gift of knowledge, all of our knowledge in this age, Paul will say, is partial. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part. We prophesy in part. Our, our knowledge can be true, but we never see the whole picture. And that's what these Corinthians thought. They thought they were special. They had the whole picture. They had this great insight. And so Paul says, actually, it reveals that you don't know as much as you think. And Paul is poking at this throughout the letter. Remember the rhetorical question he's asking the Corinthians all the time? Don't you know? He says that like 10 times later. Don't you know? You, you Corinthians, you're brilliant. You don't know what I'm talking about? Don't you know these things? And, and that really highlights the first danger of this obsession with being right. When I'm convinced I'm right, I am probably missing something, especially if I'm prideful or arrogant about my rightness. There's a great story. Back in 1995, a man named MacArthur Wheeler decided to rob two different banks in the same city on the same day. And he did it in broad daylight. And I know what you're thinking. This man is a genius. How could anyone possibly think they would get away with that? Well, Wheeler had a trick up his sleeve. He had a brilliant plan to escape capture. Do you know what it was? Lemon juice. That's right, lemon juice. And, and here's how Wheeler reasoned. He knew that lemon juice was used in invisible ink. And lemon juice makes ink undetectable. So here's what Wheeler reasoned, that if I just rub lemon juice on my face, <laughs> I will be invisible to the cameras. And so he rubbed all this lemon juice on his face, walked into one bank, robbed it, walked into another one, robbed it, walked home to his house, and within a few hours, local authorities were at his house, and sure enough, the cameras had recorded his lemon-soaked face. His picture was posted on the 11 o'clock news. Someone identified him. He was arrested on the same day. But here's what's fascinating. When authorities came to Wheeler's house, he was shocked. He could not believe that his plan hadn't worked. And this story was so fascinating to two professors, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, that they asked, how could someone with such a terrible plan be so confident it would work? So they conducted a series of studies, and here's what they discovered. Did you know there's a relationship between incompetence and confidence? You already know this, don't you? People who are unskilled at a task are often very confident in their ability to perform it while people who are more skilled are often very unconfident 
in their ability to perform it. Unskilled people tend to overestimate their skill. Skilled people tend to underestimate their skill. And this is now known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. If you've ever watched a singing competition, you have seen the Dunning-Kruger effect. Because inevitably, the worst singer is the most incensed that these judges who know nothing about singing think that they're not a good singer, right? And Dunning makes an interesting statement. He says this, if you are incompetent, you can't know you're incompetent. The skills you need to produce a right answer are exactly the skills you need to recognize what a right answer is. There's a spiritual version of this family. When we take pride in our biblical knowledge and our spiritual knowledge such that we look down on other people, it's a really good sign that we don't know as much as we think we do and that we're probably missing something big. So what were the Corinthians missing? Let's look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, here's what I think the Corinthians would say. We know, Paul, that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Here's what the Corinthians say. Here is what justifies them participating in idol meals. We know the truth about idols. Paul, they don't exist. Literally, they say an idol is nothing in the world. An idol has no substance. And you know the reason they think that? Because they're good monotheists. They know the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4, what does it say? There is no God but one. And the Corinthians were apparently appealing to these sayings to justify their participation in temple meals. The, the temple was a social hub. People would show up at the temple uh, for birthday parties and business meetings, and you'd have a meal within the temple, and, and maybe you'd celebrate someone's birthday, and there would be libations and sacrifices to the gods and prayers to the gods, and then a sacrifice to the gods, and then you'd eat to the gods. And the Corinthians were fine with all of this because they said, guys, this is all just superstition. Who cares? We can participate in this. Stop being so superstitious and worried about idols. We know the truth. How does Paul respond? Well, he says, well, you're missing the bigger picture. First, and now Paul is setting up the argument that he's going to make later. Here's what Paul says. In response... For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, this verse is a bit tricky to understand. Does Paul agree with the Corinthians or does he disagree with the Corinthians? Yes and no. See, in one sense, the Corinthians had their theology right. Do idols amount to nothing? Yeah, the Old Testament says that all the time. Idols are ultimately nothing. Those who make them come to nothing. Those who worship them come to nothing. Compared to God, they're less than nothing. There's only one creator God. There's no rivalry in heaven. There's only God and God alone. That's all true. Paul would agree with the Corinthians on all these points. But does that mean that pagan gods have no existence whatsoever and pose no spiritual danger? No, the Bible never says that. In fact, what Paul is saying here is that there are gods and they are, there are lords. Now, what is Paul saying? Does he mean that like Zeus and Poseidon are up in heaven next to God? No. What he's saying is actually the same thing Moses says in Deuteronomy 32. That do you know who inhabits idols? Demons. 
demonic forces are at work through the false gods of the world, that's why idols exert such a powerful influence on people. There is a spiritual reality there, just not the spiritual reality that people think. Satan and his demons work through idols to hold people enslaved. And so to have this nonchalant attitude toward idols, you're playing with spiritual fire is what Paul is going to go on to say. Does that make sense? So they took a right view that idols amount to nothing. And then they took it in a wrong direction, which is there's no spiritual danger here. And now Paul is subtly starting to correct their thinking and say, oh no, (laughs) there is a sense in which idols are very real because demons are real. And you do not want to get around that stuff. And so it is spiritually dangerous to associate with idol worship. There is nothing enlightened about it. Paul corrects their misperceptions about idolatry, and then even more astoundingly, he's going to expand their horizons for what it means to believe in one God. They need a bigger view of that as well. Look at what he says. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Think about this for a minute. Paul is a first century Jew writing this. He's writing in the context of idolatry and contrasting the true God of Israel with false gods. That's the context. And what does he say? There's one God, one Lord. Do you know what that sounds like? Israel's fundamental statement of faith. What is the first thing Moses says? Here's foundational Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here Paul is saying that that one Lord and one God has a name and it's the Father and Jesus Christ. Woo! Like this passage doesn't prove the Trinity, but it probably proves the binity, okay? You've got two persons in the divine identity right here. And for a Jew to say this is astounding in the first century. Astounding. That's what Paul is saying, that the God we worship is Father and Son. And and he is pointing the Corinthians back. He's saying that if you have a good theology, you're going to look at Jesus on the throne. And if you see Jesus on the throne, you're going to see his love, and that's going to motivate you to act in love toward others, which is going to be his point later on in this passage. So he's setting it all up right now. But, but here's the point. Let's return to the point at hand. Do you see the problem? When we take pride in our knowledge, there are areas that we are going to be blind to. There are things we're going to be deaf to that God wants to teach us. There is nothing wrong with knowledge, but there is everything wrong with a prideful attitude towards our knowledge. Because the minute I say to myself, I have arrived in my understanding, do you know what I am? Unteachable. I am de facto saying to God, I cannot be taught in this area. I cannot learn. And what is the Bible useful for? Correction, reproof, training in righteousness. If I have a smug, self-satisfied view toward my own knowledge, the Bible is useless to me then. Because it cannot, conf- I cannot correct me, cannot rebuke me. Does that make sense? All right, so how do you know if you're an intellectual jerk? Okay, that's, that's really the question here. How do you know if you're just smug in your own knowledge? Here are just some questions I ask myself, and maybe these will be helpful for you. 
First one is this. When I gain a new insight, do I instantly feel superior to other people? When I learn something, I go, ooh, other people don't know that. Maybe I, I hear an insight and think, ooh, other people need to hear that. Maybe that's what you've done with this sermon and you're thinking about that idiot in your life who's just really smug and self-satisfied. You're like, I wish they were here to hear Jeff's sermon. That's a great hint that maybe you're a little satisfied in your own knowledge. When I talk to other people, am I genuinely curious as to what they think? Do I listen to understand or do I go into conversations just desperate to get my point across? Oh, I have something great to say. I can't wait to say it. Am I satisfied with biblical knowledge even if it doesn't lead to obedience? That's a big one. I know it, therefore I'm mature. I, I know I have a correct theology of giving and that's what's important, not that I give. I, I have a correct theology of justification by faith, but it doesn't matter that I try to self-justify all the time and defend myself. I, I have a theology of God's complete control over the universe, yet it doesn't matter that I'm anxious all the time. You see the disconnect there? Uh, in a conflict, do I instinctively assume that I see the whole picture? This is a big one for me. If you're in an interpersonal conflict, do I just think, I know what's really going on here? Even if you're viewing it from the outside, I know what's going on. I know the right answer. Man, I'll tell you as a pastor, having walked through so many conflicts, in almost every case, I hear one side and think, oh, they are so right. And I'm right. And I know how to view this until I hear the other side. And think, wow, I don't know anything now. <laughs> and I need to think through this again. Ask yourself, am I teachable? Am I willing to learn? Because when I'm obsessed with being right, I'm blind to where I'm wrong. Does that make sense? All right, it gets worse, okay? <laughs> it gets worse because if I'm smug about this, it's not just that I'm blind to where I'm wrong. I'm going to be blind to where I'm wronging others as well. And this gets to the heart of what's making Paul really mad here. Because the Corinthians enlightened stance about worshiping idols and not worshiping idols and, oh, there's no real idol, so we can just participate in this stuff. It's not just a sign of their spiritual deficiency. This thing is actually harming people in the body of Christ. That's why Paul cares. Here's what he goes on to say. Verse 3, the Corinthians thought that the sign of maturity was knowledge, right? That if you're a real Christian, you know a lot. What does Paul say the sign of maturity is? If anyone loves God, that's the sign that they're known by who? By God, known in an intimate, personal way. See, the Corinthians thought if we know a lot of stuff, it's a sign that, we're, that God is present in our lives. What does Paul say? Nope. You know the sign that you know the God who is love? Do you know what the sign of it is? That you actually become loving like God is loving. And that's the proof of your maturity. That's the proof that you've arrived in the Christian life is that you live a life characterized by love and that's exactly what the Corinthians were missing because these actions we're, were not loving. Here's what he goes on to say. However, Corinthians, not all possess this knowledge. What I think Paul is saying is this. Corinthians, not all have your super enlightened stance toward idolatry that leads you to just cavalierly go into a temple and eat idol food. Not all Christians are as smart as you. He's being sarcastic, which I love. 
right? He's being sarcastic. Not all of them have this knowledge, but some of your brothers and sisters in Christ, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is what? Defiled. See, Paul is talking here about what the cavalier attitude of the Corinthians, what it is leading other Christians to do. And he talks about Christians here, or at least members of the body of Christ, whose conscience is weak. What does that mean? I think what Paul means is this. He's talking about people who are brand new to the faith. Brand new. And they're still growing in their understanding, and they have a weak self-awareness of their own allegiance to Jesus. I think that's the idea. When he talks about conscience, he's thinking about their consciousness, actually, of, am I a Christian yet? Do I really believe this stuff? They're just starting to give signs that they're walking with Jesus. Now, think about those people. Paul says they're weak. They're not rooted in the faith yet. They are seeing these Corinthians now. Go into the temple. Eat temple food. What's that going to tempt them to do? the exact same thing. And as we'll see, that's a big problem. So so Paul gives a rebuke here, and he says two things. First, your actions, Corinthians, don't impress God. And second, these actions you're going to take, they really do impact others in horrible ways. First point, your actions don't impress God. He says to these Corinthians, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Here's what Paul is saying. These Corinthians, their enlightened stance toward temple meals, they thought, you know what? If you're a really mature Christian, you can walk into a temple, you can eat, and you can be fine with it. That shows what? That you're knowledgeable. That that God is impressed with you. (laughs) That does not commend you to God. In fact, these Christians who would want to avoid that, they're not worse off. And by the way, you're not better off If you do this, this is not a sign of your standing with God. This isn't impressive. In fact, this is evil, what you're doing, which is why he goes on to say exactly the impact that they're making. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I think those words are filled with contempt on Paul's part. That phrase, this right of yours, It's not that Paul thought they had the right to do this. Who thought they had the right to do this? The Corinthians. They thought we have a right in Christ to just walk into a temple, eat things, who cares? They thought this was a right. And now Paul is correcting them. And he says this, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, your superior knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged or built up if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against who? Christ. Here's what's going on. These Corinthians come into the church. Uh, They're starting to hear about Jesus. They want to identify with Jesus. And then they see these more mature, knowledgeable believers in the church walking in and eating in an idol's temple. And they say, hey, look, if you're really enlightened in the faith, you would go in there with me. 
You wouldn't make a big deal about this. But, but who are these people? They have an association with idolatry. They spent their lives worshiping idols. And now they're going to go right back into these ceremonies. What are they going to do? They're going to keep worshiping the idols they've always worshipped. That's their practice. That's their habit. They're not rooted in their faith. They're not secure in Christ yet. It's not even clear that they're genuine believers yet. And what happens? You send these people right back to the lifestyle that God wanted them to save out of and right out of the faith entirely. Stumbling block here means a stumbling block to your faith in Christ. These people stumble over your practice and reject Christ and go right back into idolatry. Is that a big deal? That's a huge deal. All because you're so secure that what you're doing is right. Does that make sense how all that fits together? I think that's the spiritual danger. And now Paul applies this principle. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Here's what Paul is saying. If anything I do would cause my brother or sister in the faith a stumbling block that led them away from Christ, I would never, ever do that thing again. And you can see here that Paul is generalizing the principle, right? It was just plain old wrong for the Corinthians to go into these temples, right? And they were wrong in their brothers. But, but here's what Paul says. Even in the instance where something was okay for me to do, was permissible by God, if I did that thing and it caused my brother or sister to stumble in the faith, would I do it? No. And here's what Paul is getting at here is the Christian ethic of love. This is our compass in making any decision as Christians. Does it build up other believers? You know, so often we want a rule for everything, don't we? I want a command for every situation in the Bible. <laughs> so I know exactly what to do. We don't need that because we already have an ethic of love that says this. Here's the Christian ethic of love. It does not begin with the question, what's permissible for me? What does it begin with? What's beneficial for others? If my actions do not build up other people in the faith, I should not do them, period, even if I have a right to do them. That's a radical ethic, isn't it? Because as Americans, we like to start with the question, what's right for me to do? What's okay for me to do? What do I have a right to do? That's a Corinthian way of thinking, not a Christian way of thinking. The Christian way of thinking is, what could I do that would most build up my brothers or sisters in the faith? You see the difference? That is the ethic of love, and that's what our knowledge should lead to. L listen, um, it is so tempting, especially as Americans, when we focus on any issue, to ask this question, is it okay for me to do it? As the first question, right? Like when I was in seminary, uh, there was a no drinking policy at my seminary, in my graduate school, right? And there was my college, and in college it made sense. I made college, there was a no drinking policy because it's illegal for us to drink. Okay, I get that. But then we get to seminary. And we're like real adults now, right? And it's legal. And here's the thing. We also knew everything the Bible said about alcohol. Everything. We had background studies in the blood alcohol level and how much alcohol was in wine. And we knew everything the Bible said about wine and alcohol and moderation and everything. And we knew that it was okay to drink biblically. 
in fact, even celebrated to drink. So this was an unbiblical policy. And we spent hours arguing with the administration about this. People would send letters to the administration. We had one guy who was like, here's how I interpret your prohibition against drunkenness, which is what the Bible says. You shall not drink. So just to let you know, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm going to keep drinking. Let me know if you have a problem with that. <laughs> now, regardless of what you think about the policy, what question did we never ask? Huh? How would alcohol affect the people around me? It was all about, am I biblically justified to do this? And we are, so we must obey God rather than men, right? Like that was, that was our policy. That's a Corinthian way of looking at an ethical problem, right? Instead of asking what is permissible for me to do, to say, well, if I do this, would it be beneficial to others? Right? Should we have a cavalier attitude toward alcohol? No. Should I drink? Well, it depends. I mean, am I hanging out with an alcoholic? Do I live with an alcoholic? I think Paul would perhaps say, I will never drink again if it causes me to ruin that person. The, the, the things I say, the, the, the movies I watch, the, the things I associate with, the driving question's got to be, is this going to build up people in the faith or is it going to tear them down in the faith? And listen, the answer is often, it depends. But it starts not with what I know is permissible for me or what I'm convinced is right, but what? What would help the other person? I have found this principle to be so helpful in thinking about what it means to love people because I, I don't know if any of you struggle with codependency or enabling, but have you ever tried to help someone and it's just hurting them again and again and again? This principle is really helpful for that. Because Kashel and I have been in situations where we're helping people and it's just clear that it's hurting them. But it's really hard to stop. And you know why it's hard to stop? Because in your mind, it feels like I'm doing what? The right thing. I'm doing what's right. This is right. It's right to help. And you can get so fixated on your rightness that you lose sight of what? What's actually helping the other person. Love builds up. Love strengthens people, helps them to walk with Christ, helps people to obey with Christ. So if I do something, no matter how good it feels for me to do it and help them, if it's hurting them, if it's not helping them walk in obedience to Christ, guess what? It's not loving. That's not tough love. That's just love. If it doesn't build them up, I shouldn't do it ever again. Does that make sense? That's a helpful Check for me, because I can get so stuck in my own feelings about what I feel good about doing that I miss what would actually help the other person. And when you, when you get stuck in that, that's when helping hurts, right? Just, that was free, but just a little, little thought there. Um, that's knowledge gone wrong. Uh, you get blind, you don't love people. What's knowledge gone right? Our knowledge of God is always supposed to lead to a love for God and for others. The end of theology, the study of God, is doxology, the praise of God, always. And the more I know about God, the more my heart should be inclined to love him. And the more I love him, the more I will love others. And what that means is every time I open my Bible, I have to say, God, my fundamental problem isn't an intellectual problem, it's a spiritual problem. 
My problem is not that I don't know enough about you. It's that I don't know you well enough. And I want to know you and I want to learn about you so I can love you more. And whenever I settle for knowledge about that doesn't lead to an intimate knowledge of where I am known by God and know him, I'm settling for less than what God has and I'm actually hardening my heart. And family, this is why we need to rehearse the gospel every day. Because here's the thing. Remember Paul says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Remember that? (laughs) The more you get to know this God, the less proud you'll feel. Because what's the core thing we're supposed to learn? The gospel. And the gospel is something that's going to bury you in the depths of humility constantly. Because what the gospel says is that I was so screwed up that Jesus had to die for my salvation. And so knowing God should inevitably produce what in me? Humility. A a lowliness, a sense that I am not worthy before God. And in the same breath, it produces in me great hope that God loves me that much. That Jesus had to die and yet he was glad to die for me. And as I reflect more deeply on those truths, I get less and less impressed with myself and my knowledge and more impressed with who? God. And more impressed with his love so that I love him back and actually want to love him and want to do what he says and want to love other people who really don't deserve my love because I really don't deserve God's love. Does that make sense? Rehearse the gospel. And if you're not a believer, that's what I have to tell you. Christians are not people who claim we know more than everyone and that's why we're Christians. (laughs) No, the reason we're Christians is because we were hopelessly lost and could never know God on our own, so God decided to know us. And he decided to send his son to save us because we couldn't seek God. He sought us. We didn't discover God. God revealed himself to us. God saved us. God claimed us. It's all about him. Being a Christian is admitting I don't know. And so I need to know the one who does know all things. That's the good news. Let's pray. So, Father, my prayer for my family here is Ephesians 1 this morning, that their, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to know things they already know. Lord, they, they know factually that you love them, but they know it experientially. The things they know in their heads, would they know with their hearts, and would it produce an affection for you? Would they know in a deep, intimate way, Jesus, that you love them and sought them and claimed them and died for them and even now are interceding for them? And Lord, would that create a new affection in our heart to know you more and love you more? And would we never settle for a dry intellectual knowledge of you? God, you want so much more for us. Thank you for loving us so well. Would it awaken in us a love for you and a love for our neighbors, a love for our family and the faith. We pray it for your sake. Amen.